So the year was 2014. My now wife, Olivia, and I, we, uh, we weren't married. We weren't even officially dating at the time. Look at that. There's us, those little babies. Olivia's got a dope Empire Strikes Back t-shirt or shirt thing on. Um, that's why I love her. She's got some swag. Uh, anyway, we, uh, we were not officially dating, but we had been on some dates. There was clear romantic chemistry and interest. And we were walking uh, on campus with some friends. It was the beginning of our sophomore year at Huntington University. Go Foresters. We got some Foresters in the room. Uh, anyway, none of you care. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, all three of us. Anyway, uh, we were walking on campus, and some of my friends uh, who I had just met, like, you know, my freshman year, they started bashing me, because that's what my friends do. They bash me. And uh, they started bashing on me that I don't remember their birthdays. Which, can you really forget someone's birthday if you've only known them a year? Mm, I'd like to argue that. Anyway, they were saying I didn't remember their birthdays. And uh, Olivia kind of chipped in. She was like, ha, ha, yeah, Austin's bad at birthdays. She was like, Austin, do you even remember my birthday? And I was like, I, I mean, in my face, I was trying to remain cool. But in my head, I was like, please don't ask me. Please don't ask me. Please don't ask me. She asked me. She goes, when's my birthday? And uh, here's the deal. Olivia's birthday falls in the month of February around the same time as a holiday. And so when she asked me, like, the neurons in my brain were firing. They were, like, running around trying to remember, like, when is her birthday? When is her birthday? When is her birthday? And so I tried to, I said with all the, all the courage I could muster up, yeah, I know your birthday. It's February 14th, which is Valentine's Day. And she was upset, you know, she's, like, giving me a hard time. And I'm running, and I'm just, I'm walking, I'm, like, thinking, how can I equal the scales out? Like, gosh, I've really screwed it up. I'm trying to like, you know, I want this girl to be my girlfriend and I can't remember her birthday. And then I have a light bulb moment. Wait, I wonder if she remembers my birthday. I said, Olivia, when is my birthday? And she said right away with all the confidence in the world, she said, your birthday September 17th, which would have been great, except my birthday September 27th. I was two days off. She was 10 days off. You can hear her saying really close, though. Is 10 days that close? And still to this day, yesterday, she's telling me, no, seven and seven. I really wasn't that far off. And I'm like, I was two days off, and I confused it with a national holiday. Like, I'm basically saying that your birthday is a national holiday. That's basically what I'm saying. That's, you know. I failed to... I'm just digging deeper, yeah. I failed I failed to remember Olivia's birthday. Olivia failed to remember my birthday. The story is really a story of failure all around. And a story of failure is kind of what we run into this morning in chapter 9 of the book of Joshua. This story of failure. The Israelites, the Gibeonites, it's a story of failure. See, we've been in the book of Joshua, right, in this series, Promises Have Consequences. And the last few weeks, we've started, uh, we've talked about the beginning of, of Israel's conquest into the promised land, Canaan. And two weeks ago, we talked about Jericho and Israel's obedience. Through the lens of, of a woman named Rahab, we, we learned how quickly an outsider can become an insider. And last week, we interacted with the city of Ai, and more specifically, a guy named Achan. And we engaged with Israel's disobedience and, and, and our sin, our disobedience. 
And this morning we pick up as Israel sets their sights on new conquests, on, on new people, more specifically these people called the Gibeonites. Everybody say Gibeonites. The Gibeonites. And what we find is a story of failure. The Israelites have failed. The Gibeonites have failed. You see, the story picks up and we're told that the, the kings of the uh, promised land of Canaan are starting to unite. They're like coming together like all the bad guys against Batman or something like that. Like they're coming together and they're going to try and stop Joshua and the Israelites. Except for one group, the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites are going to try and pull one over on the Israelites. They're going to try and deceive them. They're going to try and deceive the Israelites and convince them that they are not from a neighboring city, but they come from a land far, far away. And this plan is so cunning, it's so crazy, that it just might work. Any, any Master of Disguise fans, huh? Early 2000 kids, where are you at? Yeah, man, I'm going to be a Master of Disguise. The Gibeonites are going to try and be Masters of Disguise on the Israelites. They're going to try and deceive the Israelites. And spoiler alert, it works. They deceive the Israelites. They convince the Israelites they're from a faraway land and convince them to give them a peace treaty. The story is a story of failure from the Israelites, from the Gibeonites. And these failures have the ability to speak powerfully to us today. And we're going to dig in, but before we do, I think it just needs to be said. Torin shared just a little about the situation in Russia, Ukraine, And this week, in some ways, this week was one of the hardest sermons to write. As we're thinking about God's people, the Israelites moving into a land, taking land, they're they're on a conquest to possess land that God had promised them. And, And that lens that we see the scriptures through this week as we're hearing stories of Russia invading Ukraine, that that can complicate things. That can, that can make it a very, very hard thing to interact with a text like today. And on the other hand, this week at times felt like the easiest sermon to write. As we're hearing stories of, of Russia and just the, 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 the power, the desire for power and the brokenness and the way that that leads people into to invade homes and families and and there's a, there's a desire for, for justice, for people to step in. And so with that lens, Israel's conquest, taking the land that God had promised them, be, can become easy. And I'm not saying we need to carry one over the other. I, I think it's just important to admit that we as a church have to hold both of those lens this morning as we walk into a text like today. And I wish, I so wish I had all the answers to to these questions and these issues and which lens and why this one's better than the other or whatever, but I don't. I don't think any of us do. And so I think all we can do is say, here it is. And we're going to walk into the text carrying these things this morning. Deal? All right, let's dig in. So if you guys can turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9, we're going to read the first failure. It's the failure of the Israelites. Chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 3, if you guys can turn there. 
says this. Then Joshua summoned, or sorry, that's verse 22. Verse 3, here we go. However, it's told us first how the kings are assembling. And then it says, however, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They're going to be masters of disguise. It says that they went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Can we just pause there? This is a hilarious image if we pay attention. The first few verses are like all these kings are ramping up for battle. They're gathering swords. They're gathering shields. And then we're told the Gibeonites are out here going, hey, let's grab some old wineskins and get that dry crumbly bread. We got to make some things happen. Like they're gathering swords, they're gathering shields, and the Gibeonites are distressing their pants and patching up their sandals like it's like 2022 or something. All right, and they're going to come to Joshua. They're going to come to the Israelites. It says here in verse 6, it says, They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How can we make a treaty with you? See, the Israelites had made a covenant with God not to make a peace treaty with any of the Canaanites because of their abominable practices with the fake, their fake gods. The Gibeonites responded in verse 8 and said, We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Asheroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. Lies. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new. Lies. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. Lies. The Israelites sampled their provisions, it says this in verse 14, but they did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. And here we have our first failure. Everybody say, wah, wah, wah. It says it plain as day in verse 14. The Israelites did not inquire of the Lord. The ESV says that they didn't ask or they didn't seek counsel from God. The the message puts it plainly. They didn't ask God about it. You see, the Israelites made a treaty. They made a decision without seeking guidance from the Lord. And the result of this was an overcomplicated situation that jeopardized the well-being of their entire people group. And then most importantly, put them at odds with the covenant that they had made with God to not make a peace treaty with any people in the land of Canaan. And so we, we're, we're, we see this failure from the Israelites to, to seek guidance from God. And it can be easy for us to like get on our high horse and be like, dang, the Israelites, they, they're not so good. How could they do this, right? But we got to wrap our heads around the situation. I mean, the Gibeonites were smart. They're masters of disguise, okay? Like they came in and they were smart. They didn't say anything about what had just happened. They only talked about things that had happened uh, uh, long ago enough that it would have spread throughout all over the place where people far enough would know. 
They kept skirting the questions of the Israelites, where are you from, who are you, and kept saying, look at our old dry crumbly bread, look at how far we've come. The Gibeonites were flattering. They said, we've heard about what God did with you and through you. And so the Israelites make a treaty without seeking the Lord's guidance. They make a treaty without asking God. And it puts them at odds with this covenant that they've made with God. Now, God, this covenant that they had made with God was God's plan for Israel at their best. It was God's plan for for human flourishing. It was God's plan for, for Israel to be all that they could be. And when they break this covenant, they become not all that God had for them. And here's where I think this failure from the Israelites can speak powerfully to us today. Because I think that there are probably some Israelites in the room this morning. Not ethnically speaking. I don't, well, maybe we have some Israelites in the room this morning. But what I mean is I, I think we have some people in the room this morning who have decisions to make. Decisions, big and small. Decisions about work. Where to work. Do I quit my job? Do I take that promotion? Do I restart my career in a different field? Decisions about where to live. Do we move to that city or do we stay here? Do we, do we try and save up and try and buy that house or do we, do we decide to stay and rent this apartment? Decisions about what's next. Maybe you've just graduated high school or college and things seem to be changing. Or maybe you've just had your first child and things seem to be changing. Maybe your kids have just graduated and things seem to be changing. Or maybe you've just retired or there's some other life change on the horizon and you're beginning to ask the question, what's next? And with that comes an opportunity to seek the Lord's guidance, to ask God about it or not. Just like the Israelites. And just Like the Israelites, things may seem smart. Things may seem flattering. It may make all the sense in the world. Why would we take time to ask God about it? But Israel's failure to seek the Lord's guidance and the way that that put them at odds with the covenant that they had made with God reminds us of the importance of seeking the Lord's guidance. Guidance. You see, when, when, we, when we refuse to invite God into our decisions, big and small, we, like the Israelites, don't get to experience all that God might have for us. God wants to be brought into every single little decision so that we might, like the Israelites, step into God's plan for us, for human flourishing, to live life at our best with God and for God. And this failure of the Israelites reminds us of that importance of seeking God's Guidance. And I think some of us just need to be reminded of that this morning. That's the first failure. All right, so the second failure is from the Gibeonites. Not from the Israelites, it's from the Gibeonites. Now, to illustrate this second failure of the Gibeonites, I'm going to pull on a, a truly classic, uh, very artistic film uh, called Shrek. I'm pulling out all the early 2000s classics, all right? Master of Disguise, now Shrek. Any Shrek fans in the room? Heck yeah, Shrek is so good. Anyway, uh, there's a character in Shrek named Fiona. And Fiona has this trait where she goes to bed really early, like before the sun even goes down. And at first you're like, this is like an obviously weird thing, but whatever. Like Fiona's a early, she goes to bed early. She's an early riser. She wants to get at the day. What's the big deal? Until you find out 
This is a spoiler alert. If you haven't seen Shrek, cover those ears. When the sun goes down, Fiona becomes an ogre. She turns into an ogre. What? Who saw that coming, right? It was such a crazy twist. Fiona becomes an ogre. So this weird, like, obviously weird trait is used as kind of a way to cover up something, like, much more significant, something much deeper. And that's kind of what we have here going on with the Gibeonites. You see, when you, when you read the story the first time, the, the, the failure of the Gibeonites seemed, seems obvious. They lied, right? Like, verses 8 through 13 are just one big lie. But we dig a little deeper and we learn that, that that is just the tip of the failure iceberg for them. Because what we find is that instinct to lie is rooted in something much deeper. A failure to understand who God is and what God offers. A failure to understand who God is and what God offers. Let's hear how they respond to Joshua in verse 22 through verse 27. Joshua comes to the Israelites. They've, the Israelites have figured out that they've been had, that they've been tricked, that they've been deceived. And the leaders, the elders of Israel and Joshua, they decide they're going to maintain, they're going to honor the commitment because to break that commitment would then further break their covenant and their commitment with God. So they decide they're going to honor the treaty. But they, Joshua comes to the Gibeonites and he just asks them the simple question, why? And says this in verse 22 through 27, it says, Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying we were a long way from you while actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are there, or that is what they are to this day. This is the second failure of the Gibeonites. Everybody say, wah, wah, wah. The Gibeonites fail to understand who God is and what God offers. You see, the Gibeonites had an understanding of who God was and what God offered. And it wasn't an inaccurate one. It was just an incomplete one. They understood God's desire, God's promise, God's covenant to the Israelite people Just not completely. Here's the deal. God's covenant, God's desire, God's promise for the Israelite people had three very clear components. We see it, we see these components at the at the outset of this covenant in Genesis 12 with Abraham. We see it reinstated in Genesis 22 with Isaac. It's restated by Moses in Deuteronomy 29. It's even re-upped by Joshua in the chapter just before this, and many other times in between. And this promise has three very clear components. First, multiply offspring. God says to Abraham, to the Israelite people, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your numbers. I'm going to uh, bless your offspring. The second piece of this promise is that God says, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. You're going to possess the land of Canaan. It's this promised land. That's the second part of the promise. The third part of this promise from God to the Israelite people is that God is going to use them to be a blessing to all the nations, to all the tribes. 
the Gibeonites heard, the Gibeonites understood, the Gibeonites believed the first two parts of that promise. But they failed to understand, they failed to believe the third part. That God might want to use these strange Israelite people as a vehicle for God's purposes in the world to bless all the nations, to bless all the tribes. And so instead, the Gibeonites' response was a response of fear over faith. It's a contrasting portrait of what we see just chapters before that in the life of Rahab, who chose faith over fear. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a picture of what, what could have been for the Gibeonites. They are spared, they're not destroyed by any means, but they're relegated to this religious servitude of cutting wood and drawing water for the altar of the Lord. Not a bad thing by any means, but possibly, maybe, not all that it could have been. They chose fear over faith. They failed to understand who God was and what God offers. And as many Israelites as we have in the room this morning, I'm convinced that there are more Gibeonites in the room this morning. Those of us who maybe don't have an inaccurate view of God, just an incomplete one. And you're listening to one of them. So often my view of God can slip into this unhealthy thing where God has a list of expectations that I need to meet. And if I don't perform to those expectations, if I don't do all the things that I need to do, then my relationship with God is not okay and I am not okay. I think there's some of us, some of us who have a view of God that says God is an insider and I am an outsider and God wants nothing to do with me. Or maybe some of us have a view of God that says the only thing God wants for me is destruction because of what I've done or what I've said. Or maybe there's some of us in the room this morning who our view of God convinces us that God doesn't want to powerfully change your life or the lives of others around you. And so instead, you just assume the religious duties of going to church on Sundays, small group on Wednesdays, praying before meals, essentially cutting the wood and drawing the water for the altar of the Lord. But on the inside, you feel spiritually dead. You see, this failure of the Gibeonites in Joshua 9 is such a powerful reminder of the way that our view of God and what God offers significantly shapes our present and our future. A powerful reminder of the way that our view of God and what God offers significantly shapes our present and our future. And before I move on this morning to this powerful reality that I think these two failures kind of draw us into, I, I just sense that some of us in the room this morning need to hear God's promise and hear God's desire for your life. It's this. You are a beloved child of the Most High God whose love for you was poured out on earth through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, who came to heal the sick, not the healthy. He said this while dining at a table with tax collectors and sinners, and he said it to the religious leaders of the time. You see, Jesus is the good shepherd, and anyone who enters by him will be saved. They will have life and life to the full. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you've been, you may have life and life to the full, with Jesus. 
Receive that this morning. It's actually what points us to this powerful reality. You see, when we hold the the failure of the Israelites, when we hold the failure of the Gibeonites together, uh, we come into contact with this powerful reality that the Israelites nor the Gibeonites receive what they deserved. Like the Israelites disobeyed God. They didn't ask God's guidance at all. And and we have no indication of any wrath, of any anger from God. In fact, the Israelites just continue on in their conquest and their success of receiving the land. The Israelites don't receive what they deserved. And the Gibeonites, who were doomed for destruction, yet through deception, they, they find themselves serving at the altar of the Lord, the center of the covenant that they had abused and manipulated. The Gibeonites don't receive what they deserved either. You see, this, friends, is the reality that we come into contact with these two failures, and it's the reality of God's covenant of grace. It's the reality the Israelites fall under, it's the reality the Gibeonites fall under, and it's the reality that we fall under. That we are broken, sinful people in need of a rescue, in need of a Savior, and we have received what we did not deserve in the life of Jesus. We are just like the Israelites. We are just like the Gibeonites. We have received what we did not deserve. This is the covenant of grace that Joshua 9 and the failure of the Israelites and the Gibeonites points us to and it's so beautifully and clearly demonstrated in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So I want, so I want to end there with Jesus. That always seems like a good spot to end because Jesus told a story one time about this covenant of grace. The disciples in particular, Peter, sorry Peter, i got to throw you under the bus, but you did it to yourself, kind of. So uh, the disciples had begun to believe that, that this stuff that Jesus was talking about, this, this covenant of grace stuff, this kingdom of God stuff, the disciples had begun to believe that, that they kind of deserved this. I mean, like, they were, they're like, Jesus, we were with you from the beginning. Like, we're your ride or die. We're the OGs. Like, we deserve this kingdom of God stuff. We deserve this covenant of grace stuff. And so they even began to wonder, Jesus, who's the greatest? Which of us is the greatest? You can only imagine how frustrating and disheartening this moment was for Jesus as these questions are being asked. And so on the heels of this moment, Jesus told a story. He told a story about a landowner who went into the marketplace as was custom for the, for the time and he started to look for laborers who would work for the day for a fair day's wage. And the, the landowner went and found some workers who agreed to work for the entire day for a fair day's wage, a denarius that was, that was fair. They agreed to that and the workers came to the field and they started working. But Jesus went on to say that the landowner again and again throughout the day found himself again and again in the marketplace searching for people who had been unemployed and then asked them to come and work for him for a fair day's wage. What would have been assumed almost like a a prorated wage for the day, however long they were going to work. And as the day progressed, as would have been assumed, the people in the marketplace would have become less and less qualified and they would have become more and more desperate to work. And we're told by Jesus that this landowner one more time at the very end of the day in the 11th hour went to the marketplace. He found the people who were unemployed and said, I want you to come work for me. And then when the day was over, the landowner went to all of the workers, the ones who had been there in the very beginning and the ones who had gotten there in the 11th hour, and the landowner paid them 
equally. And the laborers who had been there at the beginning of the day said, what? What are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense. We've been here since the beginning. Why are we getting paid the same as the people who just got here in the 11th hour? And Jesus said, the landowner looked at him and said, can I not do what I want to do with what belongs to me? You have been been paid a fair wage. What was agreed upon was paid to you. Are you jealous because I am generous? Jesus used this story on the heels of a moment when the disciples had begun to feel like they deserved what they were getting. Jesus used this story to communicate, my kingdom, my covenant is full of people who have received what they did not deserve. You see, everything that we have, every single thing that we have is a pure gift a result of the grace of God, that breath in our lungs that we just breathed, a result of the grace of God. God's rule and God's reign is an economy of grace. And it is available to every single one of us, to the Israelites, to the Gibeonites, to the people who came to the field to work in the last hour, and to each and every single one of us. And so we're going to move into a time of worship. We're going to move into a time of response, of gratitude to this covenant of grace that we have received, that we get to live under. And as we do that, I want to invite you to to worship, to respond. And if you need to come forward this morning to do some business with God, I want to invite you to do that. If you feel like an Israelite this morning, you've got a big decision to make about work or school or life or what's next or whatever, I want to invite you to come forward to, to lay that at the feet of God and say, God, I want to invite you into this decision. I want to seek your counsel. And I want to lay this at your feet. If that's you this morning, I want to just invite you to come and do that. We have a prayer team that would love to pray with you. I'll be up here. Torn will be up here. We would love to pray with you, but that's not required. You can come up here and do whatever you need to do. Maybe some of us this morning feel like a Gibeonite. Like our view of God isn't necessarily inaccurate, just incomplete. We have a view of God and what God is offering us that, that has shaped our present and it right now is shaping our future. And, and we want to turn that around. We want to lay that at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus I want you. I want the complete you. I want the true you. I want the you that comes into my life that changes my life and the others around me. And if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come forward. If you've never said yes to this promise, to this desire that God has for your life in Jesus, if you want to talk with someone about that, if you want to pray about that, please come forward. I want to invite you to come forward to respond in worship this morning to this covenant of grace that we all live under even though time and time and time again we fail, just like the Israelites, just like the Gibeonites, we receive what we have not deserved in the life of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning with with heavy hearts, fully aware of the failures of our humanity, and the brokenness and and the way that that can just destroy lives and homes and families and cities and countries. God, we thank you this morning for your word. Your word that is honest about human failure. 
And the way that, that your word and these failures can speak powerfully to us today to reorient us, to put us on a new trajectory that's life with you and for you. And so God, I just, I pray for that this morning, that in this time of worship, as we sing these, these three songs that help focus us and, and, and center us on you and your desires, your promises, your story, that as we do that, that you would just come spirit, that you would move, that you would help us leave these decisions at your feet and ask your guidance, that, that we would recenter our, our our hearts and our minds and our lives on, on who you are and what you offer us, God. And we thank you for this covenant of grace that you offer through your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we gather this morning. It's in his name that we pray because our name doesn't mean a whole lot, but his name means everything. And to him be the power and the glory and the kingdom forever and ever and ever. Amen.